Bank of Clark County is making it easy to give to local charities. We're featuring a different one at each of our Bank of Clark County locations. To find out how you can support their good work, visit our website at www.bankofclark.bank or follow us on our social media channels and the hashtag GiveWithBOCC. Bank of Clark County. Member FDIC. Is it cold blue for the disciples of Christ? This is episode 105 of Church and Maine. Welcome to Church in Maine, the podcast that is at the intersection of faith and modern life. This is a podcast where we focus on religion and public affairs, and I am Dennis Sanders, your host. For those who don't know me, I am a pastor of a church um, in the suburbs of the Twin Cities. Well, I hope that you all had a good 4th of July weekend. Unfortunately, as we know, um, there have also been tragedy, um, yet another mass shooting. And I'm hoping at some point maybe that we can kind of chat more about that. But um, we do want to be mindful of those people who are uh, today um, dealing with the tragedy that happened earlier this week um, in Highland Park, Illinois. And we pray that God will be with them. So uh, last year around this time, I had the honor of hosting a longtime colleague, Jeff Mitchell, on the podcast. Uh, Jeff is a pastor in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, and he is the uh, senior pastor of Lindenwood Christian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. It is one of the oldest disciple churches in Memphis. And when we talked a year ago, um, we talked about the ongoing state of mainline Protestantism, more specifically, the ongoing decline of mainline Protestantism. Um, it was a pretty engaging uh, conversation, um, and uh, I know that it was a both a podcast and video that a lot of people listened to. Well, today, we are continuing that conversation, kind of about the decline of this uh, venerable tradition, but we're actually looking a little bit closer. Um, we're looking we're focusing on the denomination that both of us call home, and that is the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. Now, our denomination has seen better times. Our membership has basically, um, well, to put it rather bluntly, cratered over the last 20 years or so. More and more people are dropping out. More and more churches are closing. And so, What's going on and, and what can be done? Uh, Jeff and I have had a have a long discussion on this interview about the denomination and where it's headed. Uh, this is actually kind of in some ways along the same line of a solo podcast I did, episode 100, that I also talked about uh, the future of the denomination. 
Um, so if you were able to listen to that episode, um, and it will, the link is also going to be in the show notes, um, and you were intrigued by what you heard, uh, stay tuned for a very frank discussion with Jeff. And so with that, let's hear uh, from the, about the future of the Disciples of Christ from Jeff Mitchell. Jeff, it is uh, great to have you back on um, the podcast. And I, this was a, the episode we did for almost this time last year was a pretty um, popular one. So, oh, wow. Um, glad to have you back on this. And um, I think that people wanted to hear that. So, well, I'm sure um, almost a dozen people were real excited to hear me talk. <laughs> you know, half of your downloads were probably my mom. <laughs> Well, I think what I wanted to um, first start to talk with is about the current state of the denomination that we both hold um, dear, um, both are ordained in, and that's the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. I think um, I've been a member um, now for about 26, 27 years. Um, and I remember something that I remember hearing maybe in the late 1990s about the denomination back then, and that someone somewhere, I can't remember who used the word, thought that we were, as a denomination, near what they would say is cold blue, which, of course, is the term that hospitals use that if someone is having a heart attack. Where, how would you define our denomination today? Well, let me go back. I, I'm, I don't think I'm as old as you are, but I have a long memory. <laughs> uh, Herb Miller, who used to be an area minister in the Christian church in the Southwest out there in West Texas, in the Panhandle, and he later became the president of the National Evangelistic Association. If you can believe this, we used to have an evangelistic free association committed to church growth that was funded solely by congregations' gifts. Mm -hmm. But in the 80s, he began predicting the, if he, he, he wasn't predicting, he said, if you track the statistical decline of our denomination forward, we do not have all that long to go. And he talked about, I don't know if he used the word code blue or not, and I'm sure uh, other people picked up on his, on his readings and write, on, read what he wrote, but Herb Miller was, was shouting at, at general assemblies and National Evangelistic Association gatherings and regional events and anyone that would give him an ear that the church was shrinking, the church was dying. And what I remember, because I came into church ministry in the mid to late 90s, was people had been openly mocking him for a year, I mean, for a decade, that he wasn't right, that it was just, you know, our birth rate's a little low and we'll bounce back. And once all these people start returning, that uh, it'll eventually sort itself out. There was basically a massive denial that we had hit the iceberg on the Titanic. And so I, I know Herb has passed away, but I don't want to say this um, to be real flippant, but a lot of people owe Herb Miller an apology because Herb was correct. And I would, I, I would say that we are in that, in that code blue. 
you know, we have been shrinking. We're not alone. And I don't know that there's any, but I don't know if it's anybody's fault either. Like we can talk about that. Like this isn't blaming. This isn't like the, you know, this theological corner against that theological corner. Uh, the church is shrinking uh, and pre COVID it was bad. And we, we are not even begun to reckon with what COVID-19 pandemic is going to end up doing to disciples churches over the next five years in terms of almost whether they stay open or not, which will be the primary conversation rather than how do we get, engage in mission, do evangelism, feed the hungry in our neighborhood and start new churches. So why were we in denial? And, and I would actually even say, why are we still in denial? Because there, there is some of that still going on. You know, it's one thing to say we have to reimagine what it means to be a church. It's another thing to put plastic HR language on just the hemorrhaging of our church and say that we get to dream new dreams and see what God is doing next. I have, I have been hearing for 20 years that this is just another trend and we're, we're adjusting to, to where the Spirit is taking us next. And I think the Spirit is taking us next, and I don't want to diminish that. But I think we're we've had a hard time acknowledging it because what that what that means is the run of mainline protestantism is over we had a really good run but our our future is not going to look a lot like our past and that is difficult for a lot of folks to kind of come to grips with and that it's also really hard to convince somebody to change when their paycheck depends on not changing. You know, and I, I think there's there's issues there with laity. I think there's issues there with with clergy that we're not willing to take those risks. And this is a massive overgeneralization. But you know, the world has changed, and mainline Protestantism is is not in. And even as we think we can be relevant to people that love to listen to NPR. Uh, you know, I'm I'm socially progressive on a variety of uh, issues in the life of the church, not because I think it's cool, but because I think it's biblical. But that biblical preaching does not just just because my church welcomes gay people doesn't mean our church won't die. <laughs> you know, just because we have had female leadership in our church for a long time, I followed a African American female pastor. That doesn't mean that that's the solution to all of your problems. Uh, we I think we have. I think we've been too wed to the culture, and where I what I what I will say is I think we've been we have not been dependent on the gospel enough, and I don't think we have clarity about what it is we're inviting people into when they join our congregation. Yeah, there. A few years ago, I wrote something um, that said, "What are we inclusive for?" And this was just after our my congregation um, voted to become open and affirming, and mm -hmm. you know I think that 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 is. Obviously, you know, being gay, I think that's an important thing and kind of worthy thing to do. But I always kind of wonder, okay, so why are we doing it? What, what, are, what are we welcoming people to? Um, mm -hmm. Because I think we want people to be welcome to the church, but it seems sometimes that we don't have a clear idea of what church is or who God is. Um, you know, what I tend to hear sometimes is that, well, Jesus was inclusive, so we should be inclusive. Yeah. Okay, that doesn't really tell me anything. Um, you know, why is it important to welcome LGBTQ people into the life of the church? 
and what are we welcoming them welcoming them into um, seems to be we can't answer that question or we think that that question has already been answered when I think in reality it hasn't. No, I agree. In reality, it hasn't. You know, the question I, I was talking with someone at another congregation, a, an elder that was trying to grapple with, what do we do now? And they wanted to pick my brain about, you know, updating the website or getting a better sound system. And those aren't terrible things, but let's not pretend like that's the reason that God has that church in that neighborhood. And so what I told this elder to do was, I said, just go back to your small group or go back to your elders group and go around the circle and have people share what difference has the gospel made in my life and find a way to talk about that for as long as you can without talking about the church. Um, you know, I have a really strong ecclesiology. I really do. But I think we have church as we know it and we describe it as higher as a higher value than we do the difference that the gospel makes in the lives of sinful people like yourself and myself. And that's where I think the conversation needs to center. Like you, the, 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 our theological diversity is a gift, but I feel like it's capsized as a gift to where we don't want, we don't have the ability to articulate anything with, with, with passion or clarity. Um, there's a difference between being non-credal and anti-credal. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we are anti-credal and, I, I think we do have a creed. It is Jesus Christ. That's that, you know, we, we talk about being non-credal as a substitute for uh, clarity of theological conviction and, and, and I think mining the canon for the canon within the canon for, for what the gospel is. And so any question any church wants to answer in terms of trying to discover a future for itself has to center on what is what difference has the gospel made? What is the gospel? Why do people need the gospel? And what difference has the gospel made in my life? Because I, I can't remember, I listened to, I went back and listened to our last interview and I have this awful habit of repeating myself constantly. So <laughs> you are free to edit all this out because I have, I have some, some hobby horses in the, in, the, in, the, in the shoot here. But Christology shapes, missiology shapes, ecclesiology from Alan Hirsch. And we usually put it the other way. We say that church, we have our description of church um, where we impose our Western description of what church is on the on the city square. And our church determines what our mission is. And then eventually we'll get to our little odd particular expression of the gospel as a mainline Protestant American religious movement. And I think we got to flip that. We got to say, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? And then what difference has this gospel made in my life? And in response to a God who has pursued me and the gospel that has renewed me, what does God dream of organizing peer relationships around in that? And that's the church. Mm -hmm. so, uh, that, I don't know if that, I tend to be, you know, no one in seminary would ever accuse me of being the most theologically articulate human being, probably because I was straight from undergrad and I sat in the back row with the baseball cap and slept. But I think we lack uh, an informed and an, in a passionate articulation of what the gospel is. 
as members of the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. And I want to say that, and, and, and I don't know the audience of your crowd, but I want to say that that, that is not a, a conservative critique of mainline Protestantism. That is a liberal critique of mainline Protestantism, that we have a unique message that is both grounded in the gospel. We have a foot in the New Testament and a foot in 21st century Western culture, and we need those worlds talking to each other, but I feel like, uh, to steal Hauerwas's language, we have leaned over to speak to the culture, and we fell in, and we didn't take the gospel with us. So, for people who are probably wondering or have that question, and I think that you and I both know that answer then, how would you define gospel? I do like four movements. There's four movements I like to think of. You know, I could distill it down to a postcard, and it probably should be, but it, it all grows out into a bigger story. We have to begin with God created a good, there is a good creation that God has given us. And that is, is not simply, you know, the sun and the moon and the stars, but it's all of humanity. There is a good creation. You know, God looked at it and said that it was good from Begin from brooding over the waters to the creation of male and female, both in God's image. That is all good. That is all blessed. And then we as human beings who are sinful and selfish and narcissistic and unable to get out of our own way, we messed it up and we have continued to mess it up. And so I would say that human nature is static. I mean, I believe in progress and our ability to stop doing bad things to each other, but human nature in and of itself is static. Well, the good news is God has such love and dream for a flourishing creation that God sent Jesus Christ into this world to be the perfect paradigm of, 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 of God and humanity at the same time, the incarnation. And I believe that through his life, his atoning death, and his resurrection, we now get to join God in God's dream of putting this world back together. And so there is an internal uh, reconciliation that myself and God are made right. I think the, the gospel is best summed up in 2 Corinthians 5. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and giving us the ministry of reconciliation. Evangelicals traditionally lean towards the reconciliation between us and God. Mainline Protestants lean historically towards the reconciliation between us and the rest of creation. And I think both of those are an incomplete gospel. And so for me, the gospel is I have been renewed in a way that I could not through my own effort by the power of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And through his ongoing presence through the Holy Spirit, I get to join God in God's work of helping put the neighborhood back together. One thing that I thought was interesting at the 2019 General Assembly, which was in Des Moines, um, they had a... Um, a talk about um, kind of welcoming uh, transgender uh, people into the life of the church. And I found that how people debated that issue, fascinating. Um, back in maybe around the, uh, around the year 2000, there was a book that came out that was a study and it was a study on um, gay and lesbians in the life of the church. And it had two um, people who were, who were leading it, two theologians, um, Doug Skinner, who we both know, and Judith Folk-Ray, who I know was a an, um, um, lesbian theologian, Disciples of Christ. Mm -hmm. And 
a lot of what they did was really digging into scripture. It was relating it, you know, they really mined scripture to talk about that issue mm-hmm. so that you realize that there was a theological grounding um, in discussing it. When it came to talking about transgender um, persons in the life of the church, there was really no theological grounding. And it seems like that was something that you needed to have and, and not in a way that you're using it to exclude people. But again, it kind of it begs the question of, okay, so why are we doing this? Is it because it's just, it's trendy? Um, because everyone else is doing it. Why should we as Christians um, welcome people? And what is the theological grounding from this? And so it seems like a, that's just one example, but it seems like there seems to be a loss of that kind of theological belief um, going on. And when I say that, I'm not saying that you have to be a a seminary graduate or have a DMIN, uh, doctor uh, ministry, to talk about these issues, but it's like the language to really discuss this in, in, uh, as, as Christians seems to be gone. And I'm, I'm just wondering if you have sensed that as well. I do think the theological language for uh, uh, around a lot of issues of inclusion has been lost. Like as you were talking about that, I wrote down my answer. Uh, Trans need transgender people need to be baptized just like straight people need to be baptized. <laughs> like that is, that yeah. is my answer. That is my answer. Yeah. <laughs> is that we need a renewing power of the Holy Spirit, and uh, you know, to, to scoot back further left on the alphabet, I know so many gay and lesbian Christians who, after their conversion and obedience to Christ. God has not seemed too interested in changing their orientation. And that Mm -hmm. became a motivating factor for me to embrace a ministry of inclusion is, all right, God is clearly at work and alive in this person's life. And they have, God has not had much interest in um, changing their orientation. And so what, 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 what does that mean? Well, that means I probably need to uh, move alongside and learn and listen and be present and then get out of the way or through, and I believe in this, my privilege, oh, swing open the doors and be a, be an, be a, an advocate and not a, an obstacle. Mm-hmm. You know, I always like the phrase that God's church needs more ushers and less bouncers. <laughs> <laughs> I know I stole that from somebody probably off of Instagram, but I can't, I can't remember who to attribute it to, but I believe it. Uh, that's my answer. And it would probably as we slid further on the to the right on uh, LGBTQIA plus, that I just acknowledge I I, I don't have much uh, experience uh, to the right of the LG and B, but I don't want to do anything other than listen and learn, and I process and I have a hundred thoughts on a hundred things, and I've had healthy conversation partners along the way. And I am not sure why we, it, let me, let me back up. Are you saying that we have disengaged faith in this conversation and simply used Jesus as a blanket endorsement for whatever we want to say? Yes. Like I already, I already think I should welcome transgender people. So I want to put Jesus's name next to it. Exactly. Versus, That's what I'm getting at. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I'm not saying, you know, that trying to, 
I guess, yeah, I guess that's what I'm trying to get at is that because I think we don't really talk about faith and, and how does this relate to this? Yeah. And mm-hmm. Because I think it does. It, it did mm-hmm. in my life. And mm-hmm. um, I'm just kind of surprised how, you know, I guess I would say there aren't people, fellow people in my denomination on the right side, but the language, the belief that's behind that is really thin. Yeah. And I, I don't know how God's going to use all that. You know, maybe God needs to get us to the spot as a, as a church to where we say we welcome transgender people and then let the theological underpinning follow after it. You know, I think, I think to be honest, a lot of, there are game there are gay members in every disciples church, whether they know it or not, you know, just, you know, it's a generalization, but we all know it's true. Uh, and I think, I think 90% of disciples churches, even those that would say they're county seat, Southern conservative disciples churches, they welcome gay people. They know, they know that John is an elder and his son lives in Atlanta. And every time he comes home, we love him and we're glad to see him. And we don't really know how to talk about it, but we love John. Mm-hmm. And I think that the theological underpinning of that uh, could use some brushing up, but I think the in, the relational power is is maybe what we need. Maybe we need to learn to stop being jerks to people that are different of a, than us, and then write the book on why we do it later. Hmm. So, why did I also ask? Why do you think we aren't? A- let me back that up. What's going on, do you think, with how we deal or relate with our congregations? Um, and maybe that's one of those questions that is general church and regional church to local congregation or not. But are we as a denomination really rest in, investing in the local church and, and helping them fulfill their mission or even helping them to find their mission? I don't know that we're set up to do that. You know, really, I don't. I don't think that our movement and our, you know, we really only had about 20 years at best of what, or no, we had less than that. We had 10 to 15 years of where we had a fully loaded, staffed, regional office to meet all of the variety of mission and constituency uh, needs in a, in a region. You know, if we, if we didn't restructure till 68, and by the time we get to the mid 80s, Herb Miller is talking about how we're shrinking and we're just gonna continue to keep shrinking. Uh, let, let, you know, we both know Jeff Gill, who's written so much about the, the rise, he, he hijacked the Christianity Today phrase, and I love it, the rise and fall of the Ohio region. Um, you know, Ohio region, buckle of the Campbell Belt, uh, you know, they had a huge regional staff where you had New Church and Camp and uh, CWF and Associate Regional Minister and Regional Minister and Executive and all that. And what'd you have that for? You know, even in his own well-sourced documents, you had that for about 10, 15 years until the, the massive decline of our church began. My region, the Christian Church in Tennessee, we have I don't think about 60 churches, 50, 58 churches, something like that. We have one full-time regional staff person who is a woman of amazing faith and character and integrity, 
But if I am waiting on her to offer something to me to lead the church and serve the church that God has called me to, then I'm just looking for an excuse rather than take an initiative to be a, a missional catalyst in the place God has asked me to be. Mm-hmm. And so I know that it is so easy. Like, dude, I've got more problems with regions than, than, than you can imagine. And I think our structure was flawed from the get go. And I, I was against reconstruction of, of restructure, excuse me. I was for reconstruction and I, was <laughs> I live in Memphis. It should have stayed a lot longer. <laughs> Maybe come back. We could, we need your help. Uh, yeah, I, I wasn't in the I oven long again. enough. Yes. Yeah. I was in, um, I don't think we should have done restructure. I, hmm. I don't. And I think we paid a price for it because we are asking the question as a congregational movement, what is the region doing to get new churches going in our neighborhood? Or what is the region doing to, to minister to our children and youth when we have historically been uh, our responsibility, churches, churches. churches or churches to churches with churches. Like why is, uh, why, why are some of the three or four stronger churches in Iowa, our, my home region, your region, if the region could do anything, it would be Keokuk, West Des Moines, Burlington, Iowa City. We need you to come and show us, and you need to put on a workshop for every church within 60 hours, 60 miles of your church. This is how we do evangelism. This is how we adopt a school. This is how we restructured our board and let us have peer-to-peer learning. And having been in a setting like that where I've been asked to teach, I learn as much listening to them. We need this cross-pollinization of church to church and pastor to pastor. And if the regional minister can do anything, it's to it's to have the authority to say, hey, you eight churches, you need to start talking, rather than saying, we have an exhausted, overextended regional minister who is now supposed to revitalize an entire movement that has been dead since the mid-80s. That is a suicide pact. And I, I, have, I have friends that are regional ministers who I think the world of, and I just, all I can do is pray for them. Because why would you, I mean, you're, you're, you've been tasked with a thankless job. Every year you will have less resources than you did the year before. And every year that we close a church, someone, two guys on a podcast are going to blame you for not getting a new church going in that area. Why did you let that church close? That church closed because either God wanted it closed or the leadership couldn't adapt to the times or maybe both. And it's not the regional minister's fault. I think we need to learn from each other. That's my hobby. Which is kind of what I'm beginning to move towards and, um, partially that's change in opinion has happened because of course, well, it happens when you're on the, the regional board and you start to actually see things, as I like to say, how the sausage get, yeah. get made. And it's hard when you just have, in our region, I think it's two regional ministers. Two regional ministers. One of them four, running the camp. One, well, one of them is running the camp and it's a four state region. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not just Tennessee, it's four states. And now, if, but if you just assume clergy relocation, uh, church is closing, and sometimes you get stuck with the building or having to, you, you, the church dies, and then you have to be the one to go in and probate the will. <laughs> and then, you know, one clergy misconduct case will chew up your time like you can't imagine. And so you put all those things together. No wonder starting a new church in Northwest uh, Minneapolis is not on your radar. 
Mm-hmm. I get it. So, but then, you know, we, it's easy, I guess, for us to look at, at regional ministers or things, uh, but what about the people in the congregations? Um, have they lost focus or lost? What's going on with them, do you think? Hmm. I would say, I would say that there are dreams inside of most disciple laity that have become very dormant. Hmm. They want to be a church with an educated and informed faith. Mm-hmm. They want to be a church that takes the needs of their neighborhood seriously and wants to minister to, to the hurting, minister to the hungry, um, offer refuge to people in need in their neighborhood. And I think they want to be led by God to go and do that. I don't want to pile up clergy guilt, but in the absence of strong missional leadership from the pulpit, regardless of how your church is organized, those dreams will often remain dormant. Um, those, those dreams will often remain dormant. Is it because they don't have someone that can push them or to help them kind of make those dreams come real? Or Yes, or, yes. Okay. And so I, you know, I think, I think we sometimes delight in stirring the pot for things that we can't have an impact on. And so like I, I talked about um, Roe v. Wade this last Sunday. You know, the uh, overturned on Friday. I talked about it on Sunday for seven minutes before my sermon. We should speak to issues of the culture. We should speak to what's going on in the world. But I also, but, you know, on the off chance that you don't have a historic Supreme Court case that directly impacts a whole bunch of people in your neighborhood and your church, you got to get up there and stir the pot to get into the neighborhood. Like, I, I have always... I love the pulpit because, man, you can get away with saying things in the pulpit that you can't say face-to-face because nobody's going to talk back to you. <laughs> like, I I want every person within a mile of my church to have food. Like, that's a comp- like that's a dream. I want every person within a mile of my church to be baptized. And when I want to, I want to put those things out there. I don't know who I stole this phrase from. But I want to preach with an apostolic imagination, not for the possible, but what is only possible with God. And I think when we want to stir up the dormant dreams that lie in the heart of every person um, that follows Jesus Christ, I think it is the pastor's job to be a disruptive witness in the pulpit to where people finally will come to you and say, all right, we've heard it. Now, what do we do? And be ready to say, you know, I don't know, I don't know exactly what to do, but let's figure it out together. Because if I go into a board meeting with an eight, eight slides on my deck to walk people through what we're going to do to reach our neighborhood, man, get me a cup of coffee because I'm going to fall asleep talking about that. But if we as, as pastors understand that we, we have been invited to not generate the mission, but to join Jesus on the mission that is already taking place it begins, us, begins to give us eyes to see what God is already doing in our neighborhood and how the church can get on board with it. Hmm. So kind of the basic question is, how do we change? 
Because it seems like, I mean, we have, as a denomination, lost a lot of, of, of people. We've lost a lot of churches. Um, as you said, we once had a national evangelistic um, association. It doesn't seem like we have that anymore. What do we do? How do we, I don't know if I want to say stem the tide, but how do we become different? Well, I think we need to double back down on church planting. I really do. We, we have to double down on church planting. You know, I, I, I planted two churches. I believe in new church. I want, I want to start a church in Memphis. Like my church should have a spiritual responsibility to start a church. Historically, we've started churches and then we stopped. And I, I want to stir the pot up to get us starting new churches again. And so if I, if I was Pope for a day of the Disciples of Christ, and not general minister, but like Pope, where I could just say, this is what we're going to do, I would reroute a significant amount of our mission dollars to planting first-generation immigrant churches, second- and third-generation immigrant churches, and planting urban progressive churches. And those three churches, those three streams of church planting are not the same collection of people <laughs> we know, but I think we we have a we do well with immigrant communities because we were founded by immigrants. Our our denomination was founded by immigrants. Uh, we were founded by dreamers. Let's just say what it was, you know. And I you know especially with Campbell, and I think second generation church plants uh, are 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 the place that we could we can also put our energy because those are often aspirant and in, in, um, people moving up the economic ladder. And we tend to do pretty well in the, in those, in the, with those aspirant communities. And, you know, we are, you, you and I both know that we have a disproportionate amount of, of progressive and liberal clergy compared to our pews. And there's a mismatch on that sometimes. And I don't think we have the courage to talk about that, that if you are young and, and super progressive and coming out of seminary and on fire, for inclusion, I think that's a good thing. I think it's almost malpractice to think you should go serve a church in Parsons, Kansas, and not be surprised when people are not excited when you introduce yourself with your pronouns. And I am advocate for all that, but I'm also live in the real in the real world where that's going to be a, that's going to be a big uh, conflict. Um, and I'm not I don't want to give up on Parsons, Kansas, and I also don't want to send young clergy to spots where they get eaten alive. I think we need to unleash that that energy and that faith and that passion to start new churches, give them resources, send them to urban centers, and get new churches going. Mm. So that that you know, when I think about stemming the, the tide, I think we got to put it all into new congregations. We got to put it all into new congregations. Racial diversity, um, racial diversity of immigrants that are moving that are that are moving up. Uh, the the latter in terms of the the difference between a first generation immigrant and the third in their grandchildren is night and day but get on that continuum and then take the the disproportionate amount of young and progressive clergy that we have and man unleash them on a city and see what what God can do that's the route I would take and if I'm supposed to be talking to myself I serve a church that has resources that could help make at least two of those happen you know, we could start a first-generation immigrant church. We could start an urban progressive church pretty darn quick. You know, we're urban. We're inclusive. Nobody that meets me thinks I'm progressive, even though 
on issues of inclusion. I, I want, I try to be, I, I want to be, my, the leadership of my church reflects that, but um, we, we're, I also serve a 178 year old religious institution, which may not be the most flexible and nimble, <laughs> but that's what I, that's what I got to say on all that. I don't know if that's good news or bad news to you, but that's what I'm thinking. No, I think that is good news. I think, I think part of our, our issue with new church is that like, like a lot of things, we really don't know what we want mm-hmm. and that there is a lot of kind of, well, we need new churches, but it's, it's kind of nebulous. Yes. And really it almost seems that there has to be leadership that's saying, here's where we need to go um, and move forward. And that also brings up some issues I have with how I think mainline Protestants deal with leadership and that it's not there. Um, I agree. And I'm as guilty of that as anyone else. So I'm not, you know, <laughs> making myself pure as a driven snow. Um, but we're not good at stepping up and, and providing direction. I think we're afraid to do that. Um, and that needs to change if, you know, th- there's danger if, if it's you kind of all caught up in, in yourself and your ego. Mm-hmm. But if you feel that this is kind of where God is leading, I don't see a problem with sharing that and, and, and saying this is what we need to be doing and how we, mm-hmm. where we need to be going. Yeah. No, I agree. And if, you know, the, the issue of funding always becomes uh, a sense of a roadblock for mm-hmm. people that want to start a new church. Well, you know who it's not a roadblock to? It's not a roadblock to immigrant congregations. It's not a roadblock to, to often many African-American congregations. Oh, it's never, I, I've never heard of money being a roadblock growing up in the African-American church. That's yes. never been a problem. It is, it is a roadblock to debt-heavy uh, graduates of, of seminary that have an MDiv that, mm-hmm. that need a corresponding salary to match the debt. And, and there's, there's a lot there. But I, but, but I say all that to say this. If God wants you to go start a new church somewhere, go do it. Get another job. Be, be a un, you, David Fitch always talks about being a union plumber. And you work 30 hours a week, you get health care, and you'll make more than you ever will serving a big steeple. Mm-hmm. <laughs> go serve. Go start a church. Get a 30-hour-a-week job. Work at, at Starbucks for 30 hours a week. They, they provide health insurance. And then go start a church. Because if we are dependent on a full-time credentialed pastor with a big, big salary compensation just to get a church up off the ground, then we'll just be waiting forever. Well, that brings up something else because, I mean, growing up as I did in African-American churches mm-hmm. where um, in Michigan, where I grew up, a lot of the pastors that started churches also worked in the auto plants. Yes. Um, and, and sometimes, I mean, full-time, it wasn't part-time. There, do, the, do you think that mainline Protestant churches have a bit of a problem with humility, that we don't feel that working outside of the church or working part-time or doing tent-making ministry is something that we can do, that, or that we're just afraid of taking that on? Or? Well, I think, it's a, I think it's a codependent relationship. You know, when you go and get a graduate degree, from a, a institution of higher education, and you have a you have this eighty one degree master's degree, eighty one hour master's degree. Uh, no one gets that degree so that they can go teach middle school math 
and serve a church on um, when they're not in school. You know, I do think that there is a human, I think that uh, the, the churches that have always had a full-time minister think it's a demotion to get a part-time minister. And I think clergy that have um, significant graduate credentials see see it as, as second-class ministry often. And you, know, and, you know, you see the trend sometimes. They have a full-time ordained minister, but then they use language like, well, we just ha- we could only get a commission minister this time. And we diminish that. Even if it's full-time, we will diminish that. And then we'll say, well, we can only get a part-time minister. And we'll, so there's like these tiers of, of uh, I don't know. It's like we compound the shame a little bit mm-hmm. that we've done something wrong by calling a part-time minister. Maybe that is the best. Maybe you've got the money to, to call a full-time minister, but instead you get three tent makers, one who makes worship happen, one who is all about evangelism, and one that is all about discipleship and small groups. That, that's probably a better model than the two church plants I've done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, it's always interesting to think that, you know, Paul himself was highly educated, mm-hmm. um, but he was also a tent maker. Mm-hmm. In, in that case, literally. Um, I don't know. There, there's something to, 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 to think about when it comes to that. Yeah. Well, if you go back, though, to the three categories I was thinking where we put new churches, you'll notice what I didn't say. I didn't say suburbs. Mm-hmm. You know, that is obvious. That's the highest investment with the least return for disciples historically, or at least at least in the last 35 years. You know, we, you, it costs a lot of money. I can attest to this. It costs a lot of money to start a church in the suburbs. And I'm not sure that if we're just being wise with our mission dollars, it's the right place to do it. I'm beginning to wonder about that um, personally, because obviously our, my church has been in the suburbs for 20 some years. And we just because, you know, we're here looking to think about other suburban places, but at least what I'm learning, some of the zoning issues make it very hard. Um, Oh my goodness, you know that you know that they the old thing of saying what they didn't teach you in seminary is like yeah. yeah I didn't learn about zooming when I was in seminary, so yeah there there is and I, it's I don't think that there's anything necessarily against suburbs people live in suburbs but I think just the area and and kind of the the way that they're set up it it makes it sometimes hard to plant it and does to, and to have churches there. And what you've really got to do is get into a spot where you can buy a half million dollar piece of land and build a $3 million building. Exactly. And And that's impossible. That's impossible. Yeah. So what's the congregational base needed to do that? 400? What was the last predominantly white church we started in the suburbs that worships 400? I don't know. You'd have to go back to the 60s or 70s. I mean, there's your answer right there. Yeah. No, the mid '80s, Geist Christian Church in Indianapolis. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we kind of talked about this, um, kind of in preparation for this episode. Oh yeah. Um, and yeah, you already know. Where You're I'm gonna going. make me talk about this, aren't you? I yes, I am. Oh wow. Uh, so let's talk about next year's General Assembly. Actually, let's talk about the title of next. Well, year. let's start with this. Hold on, I'll, I'll okay. talk about okay. the title. Okay. Is this going to be our last General Assembly? Oh my gosh. I don't know. That's a good question. We don't have one on the books. It was supposed to be Memphis 
next summer because it was supposed to be 21 in Louisville and yep. 23 in Memphis. And I was super pumped up to, to be here in Memphis and in not host the General Assembly. I wouldn't have done any of the logistics work. I would have just made sure that I got to say hello to everybody. Um, and yeah, nothing against free- Louisville, but I, I wanted to be in Memphis. I know. I know. I, I grew up in Louisville, so I get it. But I, we don't have a General Assembly on the books for 23, I don't believe, or for 25. 25, I don't believe. And I don't like who's going to come. How big a crowd is it going to be? I don't I don't know. I mean, we are in the Campbell Belt there. We're right on the Ohio, Indiana, Kentucky corridor. But I don't know. Mm. I'm it, going. It, I'm going in case it's the last one, so I can say I went. Oh yeah. What do you think? It's because it's people are not enough people are coming, or it's not. Well, not enough. Pe- not enough people are coming. That's a that's a given. You know, not enough people are coming. And I know that we can get into smaller convention halls. I I'm of the I'm of the bias that we should just have three days of worship and preaching of every tradition, of a variety of, of perspectives, and you know, have like continuing ed in the morning, worship in the afternoon, go eat, and then a big old worship service that night, and let everybody go relax. And you know, a lot of them can go drink beer, myself included. And then the next morning, everybody don't have to be anywhere till 1030 because, you know, those business sessions at 830, I don't think nobody, I don't know anybody that wants to go to those. (laughs) We should do the whole business session in one consent agenda. It's just like read it and you have to have a question about, we'll, we'll set aside two hours. You get a question, open mic question about every single thing that's in the 200 pages. And then when we're done, we're just going to call it a day. We're not, don't spend all that money on a video. Nobody's going to watch. <laughs> exactly. Keep, keep the assembly, you know, keep the exhibit hall open longer. Don't close it during business sessions. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. I don't get that. But it's I like closing the coffee bar or the, the, the pot. It's like turning the coffee pot off during worship. There's some guys that their worship is sitting out there talking to other people, drinking coffee. <laughs> Yeah, I don't get that. But, you know, I mean, it's it's interesting how much it's changed over the last 20 years or so that the number of people that go have has really dropped off and Mm -hmm. even kind of the quality. I think the quality's really dropped off. Yeah. Yeah, I think the quality has dropped off. Uh, But I'm probably nostalgic, too. So I'll just say that, you know, (laughs) I'm probably nostalgic, so maybe the quality has not dropped off. The commitment of those doing it has has remained strong. So, okay, so we're going to go back to that title. Go for it. Go for it. I'm ready. <laughs> well, what is it that you? What's the problem that you have with it? I, I can go into, as I've said before, I am not crazy with the title, especially the one word. But what is it that you don't like? And by the way, the word is kingdom. Is it the, like. is it the kingdom of God? Is that what it's called? Is that the title for the assembly? All right. Why I don't like it is it's about God. Kingdom is about us. If we want to revamp non-patriarchal language, go for it. I'm all in. I want to learn. I try to be the advocate for it to the best of my ability, though it's imperfect. I will, I, it, whether I accept it or not, doesn't matter. 
I think that's I think that's healthy for the church to be in conversation with the culture and linguistics. But it's a it's not about us. It's about God. And it is about God's reign. It is about allegiance to Jesus Christ. And when Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God, it is a hierarchical, top-down experience. The relationships of commonality, mutual respect, inclusion, all good things, are made possible by the one who came announcing the kingdom. And so that is the frustration that I feel, is what do we actually do that needs God in the first place? And I do, you know, it's so funny because I feel like I've just become the old guy in the in the yard yelling, everybody to, you know, turn the music down, stop driving so fast. And, and you know, I just watered this grass and you young whippersnappers are out there. Old man yells at cloud. Old man yells at cloud. If we want to re-envision non-male language for metaphors for God, I think that's a gift to the church and mm-hmm. people that, that can engage in that and offer resources for that. I applaud. I will continue to buy them, but make it about God. That's just my, that's just my, sub-box. and I could be wrong. And I'm sure that this is going to get forwarded to the whole general office and I will never be asked to speak at anything ever again. And that's fine. Cause I never get asked to speak at anything and I don't care, but I just have this hunch that, we're going to make this celebration about us rather than the God that's brought us through the pandemic. Hmm. And that's an important thing to know. Yeah. Say more about that. You know, the rolling text of, I don't know. I just have such gratitude to still be alive right now. And on the other side of all of my process theology in my theodicy is just a deep appreciation for a God who saves. And I don't have to completely understand it. You know, I've done funerals for people that have died of COVID. I've had staff members that um, suffered greatly from COVID. Our church, our denomination, which I do love, has just been ripped apart by COVID. Part of it in board meetings of how we handled all this and part of it just what lockdowns and Zoom and masks or no masks did to faithful people. And if we're still here and we're still able to actually gather in the summer of 2023, I just want our response to be worship of a God who has brought us this far because a whole bunch of people didn't make it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if our church is going to end up making that out of it, but if we're still here in any way, our only response should be praise to Jesus Christ. Why do you think that we do make it about us or do make, you know, and, and it's not even just with this general assembly, there was general assembly again in Des Moines where there were people that kind of missed the message that I think was happening. And it seemed like it was over whether the person used the right gender inclusive term or not. Yeah. Um, why do we seem to miss kind of the, the, the forest from the trees? 
you know, I don't have an answer for that. I, I will do everything within me to not project onto someone else's uh, frustration, my suspicion. So I don't know. I don't know. I would, I would encourage you to ask those that, that may think differently than I do. I don't know. So where do you think we're going? Where is the future? What is the future for our congregation? If we just had using kind of, as you've said, missional imagination, where do you think we're headed? Is it kind of rough, but yet moving towards something hopeful or something? I think uh, there's something even darker, you know, it, my favorite John McCain quote, it's almost dark. It's always darkest right before it goes completely black. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh man. The George Will said the, the upside of being a pessimist is you're either proven right or, or, or you're pleasantly surprised. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think we, I think we have to be able to say that it will continue to get worse. It will continue to get worse, and there is no programmatic piece to pull it out of us, pull us out of this. There is no great Bible study that can come from Chalice Press or Cokesbury that is going to reinvigorate our congregations. There's no continuing ed, MDiv, or DMIN that we can blanket across our movement to um, breathe life into us. If I, if a church asked me, what should we do? to begin to live again. My standard response now is that you need to meet once a month on Wednesday night and do nothing but absolutely pray for an hour. Pray in silence or pray out loud, but pray and pray as a community for an hour that God would bring life back to our church. I think the sovereignty of God in the renewal of our church we are totally dependent upon that. And for our dependence to be made known, I think it comes through the humility of spiritual disciplines to reunite our congregations. So we have we have a new Great Commission team in our church that will be starting, um, this is June 30th, we'll be starting this in late July. We have a Great Commission team, and our only purpose is to gather and to pray that God would send us hurting people that we could minister to, and that God would send us to hurting people that we could minister to. And we're not going to talk about updating our website. We're not going to talk about trimming our hedges or getting a better sign or a better set of speakers. We are going to make ourselves available to God after we have begged God to move in our church. And it's on the calendar for six months, and we're going to do it every month, no matter what to just pray that God would do this. Now, I am knee-deep in my dissertation on adaptive change versus technical change in the heart and, you know, Heifetz. I I know a ton about leadership strategy. And honestly, after I absorbed stacks of books on all of this, this was the best plan I could come up with, is that we have to become new people. And if, if you go to a board, if you go to the board of a First Christian Church, Disciples of Christ, and wherever, wherever, Indiana, and you open up the question, how do we grow our church? 
how do we get back on mission? There is going to be a laundry list that will simply be do more and try harder with what we've already done. And I come at it from a different perspective now. Now, I used to lean really hard on do more, try harder, but make it look fresh and new. The way I come at it now is I am not equipped to do this. I cannot renew a church. And not in some like bleak Calvinist way where I can't do it, but only God can do it. But I do not have the gifts. I do not have the knowledge and I do not have the skills for what is needed in this next season of mainline Protestantism. And so, Lord, I've got, I need you. I need you to move in this church because I've given it everything I can. I need you to summons people by the power of your spirit to join us on your mission of putting the world back together through the power of the spirit. And I need you to help me become available to wherever I'm at, that I will be present. I will be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, and be a person of, of patience and let the quiet confidence of the gospel manifest itself in my relationships. And I can't, I'm not that person right now. And this is why I can't pray enough. And I think we need to communally confess our total dependence on God to humbly lead God's church. And I, I, think, I think we actually need as many people as we can to come together and beg God to help make our churches live again. Can these bones live again? needs to be our prayer, communally and programmatically. You know, and if, if you're really in desperate shape, cut every program that you have and just get together every Wednesday night and pray and pray and pray and pray. Hmm. I had other things I was going to think about, but I think there is something to be said about that. And, and now I remember what I was going to get at. It feels like in some of this, whether it's new church or your own or current churches, whether it's local church or the denomination of the whole, it almost seems like we have to get used to a sense of dying. Yes. Um, and... Yes. We put some context to this. A few, um, for people who don't know, um, well, my church, it's, we've sold our building. We're trying to find a place to move. And, you know, we're, we're kind of going through this whole thing of getting rid of a lot of stuff because we can't take everything with us, mm -hmm. even though people would like us to. Um, and one of the things that we had to decide if we're going to uh, give up was we have a, a grand piano, um, baby grand. Um, and I was initially hesitant. That was something that we had worked to get because when I first came there, they didn't have a musician. They had some older pianos. They actually used a kind of a, a player program mm -hmm. that was horrible. Um, and so we got this piano. And um, initially I wasn't crazy about it. And um, two people, the music director and then the treasurer both brought that up and something happened after I listened to the second person. It's kind of more like feeling that, okay, I think this is God saying something mm -hmm. within a sense of 24 hours. And it's like, okay, I think we have to give that up. It's not easy, but that's what we have to do. Yeah. And I think 
what I've learned from that experience is that you kind of have to, in some ways, deal with dying to certain ways of what of what you expect. Yeah, and that's not easy. That's hard. That's incredibly hard. But I don't think that change comes unless there is some sort of a death. Yeah. Um, and and I just don't think you you can't change and not die. I, I think, and if you do, you're just going to die, and that, and and there isn't going to be any change. Um, so I don't know. That's kind of where where I've been thinking about. And the Son of Man will go to Jerusalem and be hand over, handed over to be crucified, but on the third day he will rise again. Mm-hmm. That's where we are. And even Jesus had to die. And so. May, all right, let's bring it full circle here because you and I are totally committed to an inclusive church mm-hmm. and totally committed to the power of Jesus Christ to change lives. Mm-hmm. Maybe we have a hard time dying because mainline Protestants don't preach the cross. Um, let me think about that. Yes. <laughs> no, I think you're right. We don't. We don't. How many people do you hear don't like to talk about the cross, or I mean, I've even heard someone go around talking about Jesus dying on the cross as torture porn. Yeah. And it's like, okay, that's interesting. But we can't, if we can't talk about the cross, how can we talk about, we can't, we're, we're, we're stuck then. Yes, we are. We're stuck. You know, I think this is kind of where I'm you know, thankful about being trained by Lutherans because mm-hmm. you talk a lot about the cross. Yeah. Um, but I think one of the problems sometimes, and I remember one of my professors saying this about how often we like to put roses around the cross mm-hmm. um, to try to make death not so bad. Yeah. Um, and it's like, no, it doesn't work that way. You know, the three, the three books that I am forever just continually, continually reading, The Cross of Christ by John Stott, Crucifixion by Fleming Rutledge, and The Cross and the Lynching Tree by James Cone. Mm. All very different writers. You know, you have a, one of the first women ordained in the Episcopal Church in Fleming Rutledge. John Stott, I love English evangelicals they actually are people of passionate good news not cultural warriors uh and james cone I, I i that book continues to make me so uncomfortable and i just can i mean i live in memphis like i can walk to the lynching sites that book is uh, should be it should just be on you should always be in the process of learning from that book so, yeah, uh, James Cone is that way. He can be uncomfortable, but you also yeah. can't stop reading. You cannot stop reading, and you cannot stop. You cannot put it down. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well. Well. On that note, Dennis. Yeah, I think we. Have, I'll let you. I'll let you wrap us up. Yeah, I think we have. <laughs> we, we we we. I think we've come to a natural ending of wrapping this up. Yes. Um, 
So Jeff, I do want to thank you for this. This was a good conversation. I hope it's helpful for people who are listening, uh, especially who might find themselves in churches wondering what's going to happen next mm-hmm. or are a young person seminarian wondering what's going to happen once they get ordained. So, mm-hmm. so thank you again. Oh, Dennis, thank you. Thank you for your persistence, for your witness. I, I, you, you are grieved about things that I'm too cynical to be grieved about. So I just want to thank you for the sincerity of your faith. And I, you, you lament, you lament our church and you are an example to so many. Um, I just, I just want you to know that I, 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 your integrity is evident to me and you are a bivocational pastor out there doing the Lord's work and doing hard work. And, I, and I'm just, I'm thankful for you. And I just ask God's blessing on, on you and Daniel and your marriage and your church at First Christian Church in St. Paul. Um, just, I pray you will continue to flourish. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. That, that means a lot. Yeah. So, all right. Until all right. we talk again. Sounds good. Right. Thank you so Take much. Care. You're welcome. Before we close out this episode, um, I want to lift up um, another podcast that you should be listening to. Uh, Future Christian is a podcast that is hosted by, believe it or not, yet another disciple pastor. We seem to be everywhere today, uh, Lauren Richmond Jr. Um, the way that Lauren describes the podcast is as such. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. I think that this is a needed podcast, especially for if you're like me, the leader of a congregation that is trying to find its way, uh, trying to uh, be church in a very changing world, um, and a church that may sometimes look too much to its past, but needs to find a way of looking to its future. Um, Lauren interviews some of the most fascinating uh, leaders within, uh, throughout Christianity, especially within progressive Christianity. So uh, please give Future Christian a listen. You can find it by going to futurechristian, all one word, dot podbean, also all one word, dot com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, that is it for this episode of Church and Maine. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Thank you so much for listening. Take care, Godspeed, and I will see you very soon. Mm